don't know how many of you are familiar with the Pax Romana. In the height of Rome, when they were the global military superpower, they had a philosophy. Uh, and the philosophy was <clears throat> the peace of Rome. And the irony of the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was that they had all of the strength. They had all of the military might. So discussion was as long as it took for you to see it their way. The Pax Romana was simply submit or die. Agree or it'll be the death of you. And so this is how they began to conquer the world. And there was a statement or a phrase that they used, all roads lead to Rome. And it was the idea that Rome was the center of the world. Part of what, uh, you know, we, we look back and we, we see kind of what um, was going through in Rome. They didn't think much of the common man, the common peasant. There was this elite ruling class and they would sort of appease them. The way they would lead the masses of people would be through food and circus. And the idea was, if you could just keep the, the, the sort of revolution, the uprising, the complaining to a bare minimum by sort of throwing bread or entertaining them with sport, they'll be fine. Meanwhile, you build your kingdom. Well, you know what the entertainment, the circus was. It was the gladiator games. So it was the blood sport of the day that these men would gather in this arena and fight to the death. And this was their video games. This was their television. This was, this was the best show in town. And as long as you could sort of distract the people, as long as you could pacify them with food and circus, that would sort of quell any sort of uprising. In the fifth century, in 429 AD, there was a monk. He had chosen to live a completely ascetic life. And he came from Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. And he came walking in on this great pilgrimage and he walked into Rome. And at that time in Rome, there was the games that were all rallying. So you can imagine what it's like on game day. I mean, people are grilling and people are talking, people are hyped, people got their dress wear. I mean, think about what you experience on game day for your favorite team. Except now was their big entertainment that they had been waiting for. And as the crowd was all funneling towards the great Roman Colosseum, this young monk by the name of Telemachus gets swept along with the crowd and he ends up in the Roman Colosseum. And, and as he's watching, this is not his normal. He's chosen a life separate from all of this, but now he's entered the big city of Rome from afar, and he's like, what is it that's so entertaining? And he's watching people get mauled. He's watching these people attack, watching these people fight to the bitter end with their life, and everyone cheering. His heart was breaking. He thought, this is grotesque. And he finds his way down to the arena floor. And he starts yelling the phrase, in the name of Christ, forbear! Which was his way of saying, stop! For the love of God, what are you thinking? In the name of Christ, forbear! You can imagine the crowd starting to go on, okay, what turnip truck did this joker just fall off of? This is our game. Well, the crowd, this raucous crowd, this bloodthirsty crowd, was bothered by the interruption to the game. It was like the equivalent of you're watching the Super Bowl and someone keeps standing in front of your TV. You're like, get away, get away. It's, 
It's fourth and goal. I know. You, you want to think that it's not that way, but these people were so entertained by their blood sport that they began yelling, kill them, kill the monk. And he, in yelling out, trying to above all the crowd, in the name of Christ, was stoned to death. There was a new emperor, Honorius, who had taken over. Three days later, he announced, because he was so disgusted at what had happened, that there would never be a gladiator game. It was a historical moment. He gave his life for the sake of peace, but he lost his life for the sake of peace. Here you have, in Rome, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Agree with me and we'll do just fine. Pay your taxes and we'll be all right. And then you're saying, this is nuts. I don't even know these people, but they're losing their lives for your entertainment. So it is when we look at Jesus' inaugural words, when he comes out as the, as, at the beginning of his public ministry, and he says the words that we're familiar with known as the Beatitudes. But he gets to one in verse 9, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about Jesus, talking this, what I like to call a new operating system. It's a new OS. It's a new way to be human. And if you've ever stalled out in your spiritual life, if you've ever felt underwhelmed by God, I want to revisit these words because as Jesus talks to us with these almost unattainable words, he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? Yeah. Poor in spirit, simply meaning the fallen ones. Blessed are those who mourn. Really? You're happy that I'm sad? No, it's because your heart has become sensitive to the things that actually break God's heart. Blessed are the humble or the meek. Really? Because that sounds like weakness. Not so among you. And then Jesus, and, and as what we see out of this, this list is, is that, can you bring up the slide bear? Is that this list has both an inward journey and an outward journey. And so when you start to realize that it would be akin to if you started trying to bandage a wound without cleaning it. There has to be something that happens on the inside of us for transformation to actually take root and our behavior to be rooted in something sustainable. That if we're going to act one way, one way outwardly, there has to be something rooted. And so this inward journey of the heart to understand that we're all fallen ones, that it doesn't matter about our wit, our wisdom, it doesn't matter about our education or our net worth, we still find ourselves fallen, that is poor in spirit, which makes us blessed by God. Because it doesn't matter how wealthy I am or how wise I am, at the end of the day, I'm still in need of a savior. And then blessed are those who mourn, simply because the mourners are those who have fallen and we start to empathize with them. Blessed are those who are gentle or, or the meek. Again, there's this inward journey, and that's what we've been talking about. And here when we get to the peacemakers, peacemaking isn't something that we can just do when we've had a lot of things go our way and we can try and keep our cool. In fact, I would say we have such a really poor understanding of what peace is. 
In fact, there's a famous benediction that comes out of Numbers chapter 6. Are you familiar with the words that he says, the Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and what? Give you peace. The word peace there is the word shalom. And the word shalom talks about wholeness. It talks about completeness. It talks about um, a kind of prosperity, a kind of health, a kind of well-being, a kind of intimacy that we only get tastes of. But it's so fleeting that what we end up settling for when we talk about peace is the absence of conflict. But shalom, the kind of peace that God and then Jesus was referring to is something way more holistic. See, I would, I would say that um, our limited view of peace ends up defining it. We have this diminished view of peace that sort of looks like this. It's the absence of conflict. Or it's being able to get through a night without arguing in a marriage or at the family table. And I would say it's that, but that's only a very small part of it. And it's, it's a misnomer, I think, to, to kind of say, oh, yeah, it's peace because no one argued. It's peace because no one's actually shooting at each other. Because you and I both know it's got a shelf life. It's only a matter of time before a ceasefire wears off and someone does something stupid and then the war's back on. It's only a matter of time before you have disagreement and get sideways and you start yelling again. God's picture of peace is so much more bigger than this, and that's the picture of shalom. So, here's the framing question that I want to offer. We all have a longing for peace, do we not? Sometimes it causes me to just be quiet because I just don't have enough energy to disagree. But I do. But then we also understand that it's God's desire that we live in peace. So if our desire is peace and God's desire is peace, why on God's green earth do we not experience more peace? You guys are asking really good questions. To which I would say peace is not simply the absence of conflict, but peace is actually the pursuit of a better way. And the better way oftentimes requires more effort it oftentimes requires confrontation. It oftentimes requires you to actually set up and manage boundaries. But peace isn't the absence of conflict. It's not the, it actually requires more work to be a peacemaker. And when you start to understand peace in that definition, that it's not the absence of conflict, it's actually the pursuit of a better way. And the better way is actually an exercise of energy then we start to understand what Jesus was trying to do when he disrupted the religious establishment, when he seemingly picked fights along the way. Listen to what this verse out of Luke 19 says. Jesus comes upon Jerusalem, and he comes upon the city, and he starts to weep. And if you're one of the disciples, you're like, oh, Jesus, you're such a kind of a wussy. Like, you're, you're crying again. And this is what he starts to weep over. Because he's seeing what it looks like to be under Roman oppression. He's seeing what his people are doing, this, this Jewish nation are doing to try and manage peace. But he says at, at the outskirts of the Jerusalem gates, Oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew the things that make for peace. In other words, you don't even know how to pursue peace. 
To which I would say, anyone who rejects the Prince of Peace will never really know peace. See, I think we're tempted to think that for those of us who reject Christ, they can never know peace. But I would say that even Christians reject the way of Christ because we don't experience peace. And in Luke 19, the people didn't know uh, what peace was. They were the, actually the ones who knew the Bible the best. Think about that. The people who knew Scripture best. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 39, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Really? So I can know a lot of Bible stories, and I can know Scripture, and I can know how to act, except that I don't know peace. See, what's interesting when you start to kind of unravel the, the, the life of Jesus is that the people who actually were outsiders were actually the ones who received peace based on how they received the Messiah. Women, a Roman soldier, come on. That's the oppressive one. Woman caught in adultery. I mean, we have uh, tax collectors, which would be the equivalent of white-collar criminals of their day. Those were the ones who actually became peacemakers because of how they received the Messiah. And the ones who knew their Bible the best were the ones who rejected him and never could experience the peace of Christ. See, uh, I don't think Christians are called, though, to be pushovers. I don't think we're called to be weak. I don't think we're called to be scared. Um, but we are intended to live at peace with God. It means, well, means when you're at peace with God, think about this. I'm at peace with God, so therefore, I don't have to have the last word. Come on now. Sometimes the last word is the most validating thing of all, except my validation comes from Christ alone. God hears my heart, right? So when you're in a marriage situation or when you're in a work situation and you feel like you're not being heard, do you really need the last word? It's settling, being at peace with God. Sometimes uh, being at peace with God allows me to serve without recognition. It allows me to even give without necessarily gratitude. It allows me the ability to forgive. It allows me to, the ability to express compassion. Why? Because I'm at peace with God. It makes all the difference. Because something has happened internally that allows me to express it externally. The second thing I would say, in addition to peace is not just the uh, absence of conflict, it's the pursuit of a better way, and that requires some, usually some more work. The second thing I would say, and I want you to hear me on this, because um, peace is like an ecosystem. Well, what is an ecosystem? And some of you who are more versed are going to correct me afterward and go, you know, ecosystem. An ecosystem is something that contributes to the larger good. It is the common good. An ecosystem never um, like serves one entity, but it contributes all factors, right? And so it means that when there is true peace, it means that everyone benefits. It's not that there's one party that should win at the expense of another party. It means that all people experience the shalom of God, the prosperity of God, the, the blessing of God, the wholeness, the health, right? Because if one person benefits at the expense of another person, that was never the way God intended. 
And so uh, we look, there can't be a winner and a loser. Shalom by definition means that everybody wins. And this peace is substantial enough that those who live in it feel no sense of threat by it. I lived for six years in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and one of the things that I had to get used to after growing up in San Francisco was we had earthquake drills. But when you get to um, Tuscaloosa, you learn um, tornado drills. I'm like, what, what, what do we do? But it was common for tornadoes to blow through and you'd kind of hear the sirens go off and then you'd watch the news until you lost electricity. And then we had a basement under uh, our garage, uh, under our house. And so we'd kind of, I remember a couple of nights taking the kids up and, and sitting there and kind of trying to wait out a storm. Uh, but I remember one year there was an F4 that came up from the south. Um, and it came up through South Tuscaloosa, kind of this hill crest up 69 and kind of up Lurleen Wallace. And it was just devastating. And here's the thing about the tornado. It didn't choose or didn't discriminate. And one of the things I would say about living in Tuscaloosa is that it is a very segregated town, except that when a tornado hits, it doesn't discriminate at all. I remember um, one Saturday morning watching the TV, we had been playing basketball at the gym and we heard the sirens go off. So we run up to the youth center and we turned on the TVs to see what, where the tornado was. And I see this huge black funnel off on, in the background. And then I notice it was Sky, Skyline Boulevard and, and there was a Walmart there. So I call Laurel, hey, where are you right now? She was out running errands. Oh, I'm at Walmart. How ominous, like in the foreground is Walmart and this huge F4 black funnel is coming around. Have they said anything that there's a tornado coming your way? No, I haven't said anything. And right then some panicked Walmart worker probably shouldn't have been on the microphone, but over the PA system is like, move to the middle of the store. And like just in all panic. And so all, everyone kind of, and the storm blew over um, and the Walmart was fine, but the city suffered a lot of damage. But here's what was the most redemptive thing, was that immediately after the storms was the most, excuse me, was the least segregated times I ever experienced in Tuscaloosa. Because it didn't matter what color your skin was. It didn't matter your earning power. It's that we all just survived. And whether you were living in a double wide or whether you have 5,000 square feet, we're alive. And even though both of our houses are in rubble, it's okay. And the level of care, the level of respect, the level of generosity, the kind of aid, it was the way God was bringing people together. See, I believe what we're given on earth, peace feels so fleeting, does it not? But what we get is sort of a foretaste. The ability to just taste moments of peace where God says, this is what I intend. And by the way, this is where all of history is headed. If, the, if humanity has a trajectory, this is where it's going. And in the end, I'm going to restore and I'm going to repair and we're going to experience the shalom of God where there will be an even playing field where we can actually be naked and unashamed, where there's not the shame, fear, and regret, where there's not the kind of sensitivity or, or, or offense, but we get to experience the shalom of God. This is where 
eternity's heading. And for right now, we just get to experience glimpses. I hope that you had moments in your life where you've gotten to taste what security felt like, where you've gotten to move from insecurity into security, where you've gotten to move from fear into provision. I, I hope that God has whet your appetite for what the peace of God really is, the shalom of God. And even though it's fleeting, what I think the taste is supposed to do is give us the kind of encouragement to sustain us for the journey until God ultimately returns and reestablishes his kingdom. You and I, friends, are called to be peacemakers, but it only happens when we understand Christ from the inside, that he is somehow, we're married to the Prince of Peace. Now, it's fleeting, right? It's fleeting. And that's problematic because I want it to feel like it's more established. Uh, one of the verses that I found was in Ezekiel chapter 34. I don't know how much of this resonates with you. If you're an outdoors person, this might resonate with you. I grew up in the city, um, but uh, after, and my mom was like, she wasn't into roughing it. She wasn't into tent camping. It wasn't until I got into high school and college that I started actually backpacking and doing things. When you grow up, as an immigrant and refugee and, you know, German occupation. She wasn't interested in roughing it. But listen to this verse. If you've ever been in the wild, if you've ever been around bears, if you've ever been around things that you think threaten your safety, this might resonate with you. But listen to this prophetic word, because this is the trajectory of all of history. I will make a covenant of peace that is shalom with them and rid the land of savage beasts so they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. Now, I don't have any great bear stories, but I remember that house in Alabama. I remember wanting, it was spring cleaning and going down to our basement and it was time to just kind of purge a bunch of stuff that had just accumulated and we start going through the mess and guess what? I pull back and I find a snakeskin about this long. It's just the skin and the snake can't be found. And so in my mind, I can't let go because when you've had a shedding of skin, that means it's bigger now. And I have issues with snakes, not unlike a lot of people. Um, and, and it was ruining me. And I'm like, you know what? I think there's a good game on. I, like, I kept trying to like, power through it, and I just couldn't. I find like, I know that snake's around here. The snake is still here. And these were in a closed space with one way to enter and exit our little basement area. And I'm like, I, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. The prophetic word is that we will experience, literally and figuratively, a kind of peace without fear, a kind of peace without insecurity, a kind of peace where we can risk vulnerability because intimacy is always going to be available. Come on now. If that doesn't motivate you, I don't know what does. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. See. Uh, despite it being fleeting, I think we can have this, this taste of it. Now, the one thing that I would simply say about is that um, 
every source of disruption and conflict is, is, is rooted in the fall. It's fleeting because all of a sudden sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3. And ever since then, we've been blaming people and we've been accusing people and, and we've been covering up and we've lived with shame and fear and regret. And because the nature of shalom is relational, when shalom is broken, everything gets broken. Our relationship with God, our relationships with each other, our relationships with the creation, and our internal sense of brokenness. It's why people act out on insecurities so much. So peacemaking, right? Shalom is always a byproduct of a heart yoked with Christ. So peacemaking is not simply the absence of conflict. It's the pursuit of a better way, and even if that better way means more effort. But peace is also an ecosystem and it benefits everyone within that system. It doesn't celebrate peace at the expense of someone else. I came across a story that I thought was interesting, and it might not be too relatable for many of us, but there is this guy by the name of Ethan Hughes, and when he was a young boy, um, 13 years of age, his father was killed by a drunk driver. And what he came to learn was that uh, 30 million people, 30 million people have been killed in automobile accidents. That, coupled with watching an oil spill happen in the Amazon jungle rainforest, made him so convicted of the effects of petroleum that he became a conscious, conscientious objector. And at first, he just devoted himself to a bicycle. That was his first step in trying to, recognizing how much violence how much death, how much destruction comes from petroleum, that he says, it's just not for me. It's fine for you, but I'm not going to contribute to this as one of the ills. It cost me my own father. But where he grew out of that was he and his wife, about 10 years ago, started, they got 80 acres of land in Missouri, and they've named it the Stillwaters Sanctuary, inspired after Psalm 23, where He'll lead me beside still waters and restore my soul. And they have set out on a radical course of peacemaking. Peacemaking. You know, oil is one of the most precious natural resources. And wherever you follow natural resources, be it oil or be it diamonds, you're also going to find great amounts of violence. And we see this in other continents. We see it in, in some of our own. People are getting rich at other people's expense. My point is this, when we start to unpack radical disruption of peacemaking, listen to what happened. Since then, since they started this kind of community, over 10,000 seekers from all over the world have visited to experience life without tractors, chainsaws, power tools, computers, TVs, or smartphones. They strive to live free of electricity and petroleum products. Life includes weaving, spinning, hide tanning, canning, drying produce, and grinding grain with a pedal-powered mill. They grow food without chemicals and machines, uh, without chemicals and machines, and they offer um, their produce and hospitality without charge. And they build homes by hand with natural local materials. They use beeswax candles, they play live music each evening, they dine on wild edibles, and they haul trees with horses. 
Life starts at sunrise with an hour of morning prayer before they get to work. Sound, sound crazy? Sound irrational? He says, we're also committed to serving in nursing homes and homeless shelters in our local community. And when our hearts call us to struggle for justice, we occasionally practice civil disobedience and spend nights in jail. We try to live in the spirit of Wendell Berry's words, if we are serious about peace, then we must work for it as ardently, seriously, continuously, carefully, and bravely as, ever, as we have ever prepared for war. Does that sound irrational? Is that something we're called to? Probably not. Does it sound crazy? Does it sound completely insane? To which I would say, if it's that crazy, then may the world go insane. I am not called to this lifestyle, but I respect it immensely. And can I just say this? While that seems foreign, and if you've made your living off of something electrical or something gas-powered, I mean you no offense because I use those products every single day. My point is this. God speaks to the hearts of individuals and raises up people to act as prophets so that the rest of us can see these signs and he's calling us to wake up maybe to a new reality. So while we may not call to live that lifestyle, to buy 80 acres out on a farm and invite people to this intentional living community, maybe he's calling us to be better or different at being radical in our own context, in our own neighborhoods, in our own city, at keeping the peace. So while there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of antagonism towards refugees, what are we trying to do? Maybe go share a meal with them. Maybe ask them to teach us about their culture. We're inviting ourselves into their lives, whether it be helping them learn how to drive or whether them helping learn how to get a job and do resume writing. The point is this. What is God calling us to do to be better at keeping the peace or to passing the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding? Because at some points, friends, it gets irrational. And we can only do this when we have been married, been wed to the Prince of Peace, and this internal work comes out, and now we're able to express it in really heaven-on-earth kind of ways. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is what reflects the Father's heart. Let me share with you the Apostle Paul's words as we wrap up. He wrote this to the Roman church. Imagine this, the Roman church. The people who are oppressing you. Imagine if you're the little church and you're being persecuted for your faith. You're not buying into the Greek gods. You've got your other god. You're, you're going against popular culture. You're, you're boycotting the, the, the Colosseum games. And here's Paul's words to you sitting in Rome. This radical disruption of peacemaking. Love must be sincere. He's challenging them on their faith. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, not in circumstances. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Does it not sound like Paul had been listening to the words of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes? And he says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone if it is possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone God wants us to experience the shalom and he wants us to be brokers of that shalom I have to tell you just one last story at the end of last week's baby shower that we had for Jonathan and Grace. It was their third child, and it occurred to me as I'm sitting on the couch in this packed little apartment, and Mission Hills showed up with generosity in mind, and they're just like <laughs> and they were buried in, in gifts and a ton of diapers. And I really think as I'm watching this unfold, this was the first time they'd ever unwrapped a present before. The Burmese don't have a gift-giving culture, mostly because they've always been dirt poor. But it seemed almost foreign to them, and I had to explain, no, we open our gifts in front of each other, and it's a good thing we also celebrate it. We're excited for you. Well, so they're unwrapping gifts, and they're just seeing box after box of, you know, diapers, and I mean, and then as Grace is opening, Jonathan's talking about, you know, when we lived in Malaysia, Diapers are very cheap in Malaysia, very cheap there, very expensive in America. I was like, well, you should be set for at least the next six months. I mean, I don't know how regular, you know, Ezekiel is, but man, he's, you know, he's set for a while. And at the end of it, I come out, I'm sort of the last gringo standing, and I'm, I'm like, okay, this is great, Are you all good? And he says, this is so good. I want to introduce baby shower to Burmese culture. We never had anything like this. I was like, oh, great. So, yeah, we Americans, we like to shop, but, you know, hopefully you benefit from it too. He says, no, but all, all the Burmese people, they get to, we could share all these diapers with them. No, but these are your diapers. Like, these, these are your gifts. These are your toys. You, you don't have to get, this wasn't like a refugee plan. This was like, for you and your family. You don't even have to farm it out. No, they're all, I mean, everyone could use this. Blessed are those who get what shalom is, that if I benefit, everyone else should too. That, it, that if my lot in life improves, shouldn't theirs? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they reflect the very likeness. They will be called children of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm aware that we might need to all take one minor step, not even a radical step towards peace. And so even in our closing moments, as we sing praise to you, I pray that you would speak uh, with clarity over disruptive conversations, over hurt feelings, over discord in our life. Father, where, uh, where we have forgotten one, where we have benefited at the expense of another, where there's uh, relational um, gaps. Oh, Father, I pray that our vow to you, our I do to you, would be such a way that we could be people of peace. 
able to forgive, able to give, able to serve, to express compassion. Living God, have your rule and have your reign, have your will and have your way. Do that in us as you, our Heavenly Father, has afforded us. As we like to think of ourselves as children of God, bearing your image, I pray that we would be chip off the old blocks because we are peacemakers and we get to experience a little more heaven on earth. So invite us into your shalom and remind us of how we're being, getting to taste it daily. Pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.